0: it. Lord, what a joyous privilege it is to be able to study your word and to think about its significance week after week, and then to be able to share it and to help feed the flock here, Lord, at New Village. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you that your word can never fully be plumbed of all of the incredible insights, and truths, and gems that are contained in it. And we ask, Lord, that you, the Holy Spirit, who inspired these pages of Scripture and the the words of truth that we find before us, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand it and to see how it has significance to how we live our life every day. Uh, We pray, Lord, you keep us from becoming a people who affirm the importance of your word, and yet in our lives we deny it by ignoring it and not meditating on it and not obeying it. So we ask for your help this day as we continue to celebrate your faithfulness, your goodness, and the wonder that you have revealed yourself to us in the written Word of God and in the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. I can't believe it. It's the last Sunday of October again. And we come to another opportunity to reflect upon the events surrounding the Reformation ...in the 15th and 16th centuries. Now I do this for several reasons. I believe that every generation needs to be reminded of their spiritual heritage. It's important that we take time to think of the great cost that has been paid... ...so that we can enjoy the privileges that have impacted our lives in so many very good ways. Uh, Even the fact that we have a copy of the scriptures in our languages is a huge blessing. I don't think many of us realize the price it took for some people to have the Word of God translated into English. Uh, Many people lost their lives printing it and translating it and distributing it. I also think it's important to have this focus once a year, knowing that much can be gained by reviewing how the Scripture over the centuries has confronted a number of different forms of false teaching and different forms of false practices uh, as the years have gone by. And the point here is that doctrine really does matter. Sometimes people say, oh, I don't want to hear about doctrine. Well, doctrine is important because it's almost like the, the bones in your skeleton. It gives structure uh, to us and helps us understand what's true, what's not true. And so by reviewing church history, I'm hoping that it would help motivate us uh, to study the Word of God more carefully and to better understand, uh, in many ways, how it serves. The Word of God serves as a solid foundation upon which the church has been built and is to stand and is to take its stand on the Word of God and the Word of God alone. So that's what we're looking this morning at this particular theme. I'd like you to, if you have your Bibles again, if you'd find your way back to the text that was just read for us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 1416 in your pew Bible. The reason we go back to this text again and again is because of the significance of, here's the Apostle Paul writing his last letter, last uh, letter in the Scriptures that we have, and he is, in a sense, handing off the baton to his protege in ministry, Timothy. And he's giving his final words of challenge, his final words of exhortation, his encouragement to press forward in the ministry. And notice that he concludes his book here, his letter, with this passionate sense of reminding him, in verse 15, from childhood, you, Timothy, have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom through faith, sorry, wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God. Another way of translating it is God exhaled. It is God breathed. And all Scripture is profitable Another way of translating that is beneficial or sufficient. It is sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God, and he's thinking specifically of Timothy, but for all of us who find it helpful to be, who are involved in ministry, and we all are, or ought to be, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see, the Word of God is not to be thought of as merely human opinions or the preferences of different people over the years it is god breathed it is god exhaled that is it is from god and according to jesus the word of god john 17:17 17, 17, the word of god is truth and the written word of god is unchanging comprehensive authoritative and reliable Scripture alone is sufficient to lead us to salvation, as one author said, and to fully equip us spiritually for all that God demands of us. The Bible is the only sufficient guide for what we are to believe, that is, doctrine. It is the only sufficient guide for what we are to do, that is, practice. And Scripture holds a position of absolute authority over the life of a believer. In every generation, God's people must set their hearts on God's Word because every generation faces a serious temptation. The temptation is, is to make the teachings of man equal to the teachings of God as found in the Scriptures. And so this morning I want us to consider the need for reform in each generation. That's my first point. We're going to talk about why there's a need to bring reform in almost every generation because of the tendencies that things do to shift. And then I want us to consider one example of one particular reformer and his responses to the issues of the day as he elevated the Scripture back to the authority of what it needed to be. And then lastly, look at some implications for the people of God in our generation. So first of all, let's look at that first point then. Reform is needed in every generation. Because the pattern of history is to move from Scripture alone to Scripture plus, and then you just fill in the blank with anything. People have visions, people have uh, various forms of writings they claim are from God, people have tradition they put in there, whatever it is that people add that is adding to the authority of Scripture. You see, church history tends to move in a direction from the written truth of God to the written truth plus something else. Tradition oftentimes is, uh, put, is put into that position. In the time of Jesus, a number of Jewish leaders equated their traditions, which had to do with many Jewish regulations. It had to do with the commentaries that they made about the Word of God, and they were all put together in the Talmud, and they had all these different writings about the Bible and the various things that they've added to the Bible. And they became equal to or even more authoritative than the scriptures. Look with me at Mark chapter 7, just for a moment. Mark 7, verse 6, page 1194 in your Pew Bible. And listen to what Jesus said to a number of people who uh, were involved in this practice of taking their teachings, their traditions, their ways of interpreting what they thought was right, and they, in many ways, uh, replaced the Scriptures with these kinds of patterns and and things they followed, Verse 6 of Mark 7. Rightfully did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines what? The precepts, the ideas, and the imaginations of men you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or his mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating... The word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. Now, let's just back up just for a second, explain what was going on here. These Jewish leaders had apparently given sanction to the process by which uh, a, a child would, at some point in their life, who was obligated by the commands of God, according to Mosaic teaching, he was supposed to honor your father and mother. That means for the rest of your life, that is, you, you look after them. You take concern for them in their older years. You try to support them as best you can. And he says, instead of following that clear teaching, you've come up with this idea of saying, I'm going to give all that I have to God someday, by Corbin, that is, given to God, and I'm not going to help them at all because something bothered me, something upset me, something I didn't agree with them, I've had some disagreement with them, and for various reasons I'm going to give a spiritual reason as to why I'm not supporting them when really my heart is angry at them. So the Jewish elders here, By allowing this to go forward and practicing it themselves, they've undermined the clear teaching of God's Word. It all sounded good on the outside. Oh, I've given it to God. But it really was a a sham. It, It was a way of breaking the law of God, defying God's authority, and yet making it seem as if they're very spiritual and religious in the midst of it. And so Jesus condemns that practice because it canceled out the clear teaching of the Word of God. And the Word of God was written down. It was recorded in written form so that it would not be tampered with, so that we would have the record clearly taught for us and that we would not be augmented or diminished in any way. Consider what it said in terms of the authority of God's Word in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, when Moses said, You shall not add to the Word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments with the Lord your God, which I command you today. So the idea was not to not to mess with it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. The same things repeated in Deuteronomy twelve, where it says, "Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add or take away from it." Now, unfortunately, that pattern, as I've said, tends to be the direction that things go. Is they have the clear teaching of Scripture. And then, over a period of time, somebody wants to add to it, or they want to take away from it. And unfortunately, we've seen down through the years, particularly in the time of the fifteenth, sixteenth century, the Roman Church, who had always affirmed the authority and still does the authority of the Bible, but the tradition of the Church, over periods of centuries, came to take on and elevate it to a position which the tradition of the Church had equal authority to, or greater authority than even Scripture. And the church as an institution had over time become an authoritative arbiter on all matters of truth. And Scripture thus has been invalidated when you have extra-biblical doctrines that have then become canonized by the church. And so various dogmas and legends have been added to church practice and to church teaching, including the veneration of saints, Marian doctrines like the Immaculate Conception, the assumption of mary, mary as co-redemptrix with christ, and also purgatory to name a few of the things that have been added that you cannot see taught anywhere in scripture. Matter of fact, contemporary editions of the catechism of the catholic church make it very clear that the roman church quote does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the holy scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Believers in Berea, according to Acts chapter 17, they were commended by Paul as being those who evaluated everything that they were taught in light of Scripture. We read this, Acts 17:11. The Berean believers received the word with great eagerness... Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things, that is, the things that Paul was teaching as an apostle and Silas, to see if they were so, to see if they stacked up to the authority of what scripture taught. We are called to be Berean believers. We must avoid adding our own or adding some other person's preferences or their traditions or their experiences or their subjective feelings as an equal source of authority when deciding what to practice or what to believe. I think of an example uh, in the last probably year, year and a half, two years, there have been a number of books that have come out in which people have claimed to have had after-death experiences. One book in my mind, uh, comes to mind, is the 90 Minutes in Heaven book. Uh, there's also another one which, written, uh, which was un- incredibly wh- a bestseller. Uh, it just astounds me, people buying these books. Heaven is for Real. A little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. This latter one, The Heaven is Real, is the story of an experience of a four-year-old boy who supposedly emerges from life-saving surgery with remarkable stories about he took a visit to heaven. A four-year-old boy, a best-seller book, unbelievable. And so he recounts his experience which he, over a period of months and even years, he would tell a little snippet here, a little story there, a little insight here about his experience. And his father would take those bits and pieces over a long period of time, and he would then write those down, add his own little thoughts and commentary to them. And that became a book based on the claims of this son. Now, before I comment on the book, I want us just to, again, think of through, biblically speaking, I can recall only a very few number of people in the Scriptures were ever given a visit to heaven. And even those who did never claimed to have gone there after they died and came back. It was just a vision of heaven, and one of them was the Apostle Paul. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and following, you will notice carefully that Paul, given this incredible privilege of having a vision of heaven, was not permitted to even talk about it. He was forbidden to say anything about that experience. And so I say to you, my friends, when it comes to the authority of Scripture, when it, the claims that people have about various experiences they've gone through, we must be careful never to say we are under obligation to trust the validity of those experiences. We are not under any obligation to change the way we live or to change the way we believe based on the experiences of somebody else, which may or may not be valid. But what we know of heaven through the Bible is to be infinitely more valuable to us than anything we may learn from another person's experience. And that's the danger I see happening in our society today, is that experience is more significant form of truth than the Scripture's. If I feel something, then it must be right. My friend, God has gone to great trouble to put into words, into verbal form, unchanging truth that is to be the gauge by which it examines and measures our experiences and gives us an idea of what is true, what's not true. So again, the shift is always in that direction. We must be called to reform and be careful that we don't give in to that tendency as so many have over the years. Number Point number two, one reformer's efforts to redirect the church from Scripture plus tradition back onto the path of Scripture alone. Now, there have been a number of individuals down through church history who have taken an uncompromising stand on the authority of God's Word alone, and one such reformer, uh, who impacted his generation with unswerving commitment, is a fellow by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was deeply influenced in his life by a translation, or the, uh, sorry, not the translation, by the um, printing and distribution of a recently published Greek New Testament by Erasmus. For the longest time, nobody had a copy of the Greek manuscripts, uh, no one had a copy of anything other than a Latin translation done by Jerome, which was centuries earlier. And after carefully studying the Bible in the original languages, in the Greek, here's what Zwingli concluded. He says, the scriptures come from God, not man. And the word of God cannot fail. It illumines the soul with all salvation and grace. And so he would study those languages. He he would study the scriptures in the original languages. And he discovered after a period of time that the numerous traditions that the Roman church had practiced during the time of the late 1400s and early 1500s were nowhere taught in the scriptures. And he publicly debated church authorities, and he won the approval of the local government there in Switzerland to make changes in keeping with what he was reading in the Word of God. And he published his own list of concerns. Luther published the 95 Theses, which is uh, he tacked up on the door there in Wittenberg, In 1517, that's why we celebrate here in October. Uh, It was at that time, 1517. This was 67 articles that he came up with, Zwingli. And he set forth his understandings of scriptures in key points, which differed from the official teachings of the Roman church. And the refrain that was heard over and over and over again by so many of the reformers was sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. It's scripture alone alone. Not the Bible plus church dogma or plus church tradition. And so Luther focused on the issue of restoring matters that had to do with personal faith, sola fide, faith alone, by grace alone, and the standards of scripture. But here Zwingli is trying to bring reforms to the church. Now listen to what happened. Zwingli, rather than following a lectionary, which gives you prescribed readings that you're to have and follow each week, He began to do something totally different, and he preached expository uh, through an entire book. And so week after week, he would preach systematically through a book, beginning with the Gospel of Matthew. I know you've been patient. You endured like a three- or four-year series on Matthew here, but we can blame it on Zwingli, okay? Don't blame it on me. (laughs) Zwingli removed a large assortment of icons and images that had been attached to the walls of the buildings where people used to gather for worship. And he stopped using Latin in worship services because he wanted to use the common language that everybody spoke every day. How would you like a service if I started speaking in Finnish, which is a language that I'll never be able to speak. I can't even pronounce half the words, but my father-in-law, when he speaks Finnish, Finnish I can't understand a single thing he says. Imagine if I'm speaking a language you can't understand. What do you get out of a worship service? Nothing. Nothing. So he stopped using Latin, and then he curtailed this financial racketeering that was associated with all sorts of relics and indulgences and pilgrimages that was constantly going on, pushing this idea of money all the time. And he pulled out the high altar in the middle of the cathedral there in Zurich, and he he claimed there's no need for such an altar anymore. Why? Because Christ's work on the cross was sufficient. It's done. It's complete. And then he said in its place he put a communion table at which time he would then invite the congregation to gather around as they celebrated the Lord's Supper. That was a radical shift and change. And due to his firm belief in the sufficiency of God's Word, Zwingli shifted the focus from the celebration of the Mass to the preaching of the Bible. And the pulpit then became the focus of worship and not an altar. Do you ever wonder about why our church looks like it does? We're not a fancy building. We're not a fancy, uh, uh, you know, entity, uh, edifice here we have here. But there's some reasons why things are the way they are. And so Zwingli's reforms spread all over Switzerland and many Protestant churches of our day still practice a number of the important reforms that he carried out. His commitment to truth impacted not only his generation, but many generations that have come since. And though he is dead... Indeed, his sermons that were urging God's people to obey God's word, they still speak. Why? Because he preached sermons that were built on what they call exegesis, which means to draw out of the text what's there, rather than isegesis, which means to read into the text, to bring other ideas onto the text and read them into the Bible. His, his, he tried to make clear what the Scriptures taught, which is what we try to do week after week after week. So the the fact is, his reforms have even impacted us even this day. Now, thirdly, I want us to look then at some of the challenges associated with this. With Zwingli, he he did have the support of the local government. Now, many reformers did not. Uh, Many reformers faced severe penalties and various forms of persecution. And not a few died as martyrs. And those who chose the way of truth, and they set their hearts on obeying the Word of God alone, they demonstrated, point number three, a tenacity and a determination to be faithful to the Scriptures regardless of the consequences. The question they kept asking was this, what does the Bible say? That's a good thing for us to be asking the question. What does the Bible say? Where's the direction we get from Scriptures? The opinion of powerful people, the opinions of pontiffs, are not to sway us. The Reformers and we are to choose the way of God's Word. I wonder how many of us can say that our convictions about various matters of everyday life, they are rooted in what the Scripture alone commands. Or do you get your views and your concerns and your values, as it were, do you get them from prevailing uh, things you read about? Things you watch on television, commercials, your friends. Where do we find our values ultimately rooted? Many of us, unfortunately, have set our hearts on things the Bible tells us to avoid. And many of us, unfortunately, are following the trends of the world rather than the clear absolutes of God's Word. But my friend, there's always hope for what? Reform. There's always hope that God changes us. There's always hope that the living, powerful Word of God can still have its impact upon us and changing us. Now, here's a word of caution. Whenever you preach on Scripture alone, what does the Scripture say? The importance of the authority of the Word of God. We need to definitely say this. Passion for truth has a potential of two possible dangers. One of this is this. One can have a zeal, a zeal for the truth and standing for the truth that's so strong that they can do so without any love to correspond with their zeal for truth. And if you don't have respect for other people, if you don't always speak the truth in love, it says, Ephesians 4.15, then you become like a noisy gonging cymbal. A noisy clashing thing that just makes a lot of sound. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. It becomes a form of irritation. And so we always need to be very clear that whenever we take a stand for truth, we do so with a sense of love and respect for other people. Indeed, isn't that what Jesus said? You'll know you're my disciples if you what? If you're like a a gonging cymbal, a loud, noisy? No, you'll know if you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So love is key. The other danger when we think about the authority of word is to be overzealous for truth, to overstep explicit imperatives of God's word. And this happened to Zwingli, I must point out. He went to the extreme in reacting to a practice that he inherited that was common in his day, when he was trying to modify and correct the wrongs of liturgical worship patterns, which were many followed for many centuries, he overreacted by saying this. He said, you may not sing any longer in the worship service. Now, the Scriptures say what? We're to speak to one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, as an evidence of being filled with the Spirit. So the thought of not singing is what? A way overreaction in which he himself didn't follow the clear teaching of scriptures. So yes, we need reform. Yes, we need change. But we always need to see that reform and change come in the parameters and following the guidelines in accordance with the scriptures, not to step outside of those boundaries. And so we must resist the trends of our culture today, which are suggesting that the church should be viewed more and more like a business model, So, that we look at the church and evaluate it as it's all about achieving certain things based on as if it was a business, and therefore we should do all those things as the Western culture encourages us to do. But the fact is, we're going to follow the scriptures no matter what. It is the scriptures who tell us that God's word is to be central in worship. You can go to some churches today and hardly hear anything mentioned of God's word, they don't even read the scriptures. They don't have any any time for prayer in a worship service because it's all about trying to be cool to people who somehow don't think it's cool to pray and hear anything from the Word of God. And so those who choose the way of truth would need to take our stand on the Word of God, not rely on the opinions of other people or our subjective feelings of just a few people, perhaps. But our motto needs to be this. Not the pragmatic inquiry of what works in the world of men. But our motto needs to be this. What is written in the Word of God? Let's take our stand on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the blessing that has come to us as we have received many freedoms and many privileges from those who have taken a stand for truth, who have refused to be intimidated by those who had tremendous political and military power, and those who have forced people to conform to things that were not in accordance to your word. We know that many people, father, have given their lives just to translate the Word of God, so that people could read it so that people could have it in their own hands, in their own language. And yet, so many of us, Lord, treat it such a cavalier way. So many of us ignore its precious truths. Many of us just dabble in it, occasionally hearing about it, never really digging in it ourselves and thinking about it, memorizing, pondering it, meditating upon it, working diligently to apply it to our lives and to think through what it means and what, how to interpret it correctly. So, Lord, I pray that you would once again work in our generation, the reform that we need. May your word change us, Lord. May your word, like a sharp uh, sword, penetrate deeply into us, into our heart and our heart issues, Lord, revealing areas of our motives that clearly show that, that we, we, in, we oftentimes are motivated for selfish reasons rather than to have a, a humble love and yearning for Christ and your glory. And so I pray, Lord, for those today who have, have sort of uh, softened their, their ears, they don't want to really hear carefully what your word teaches, I pray, Lord, give them ears to hear your word and to obey it. And give us, we pray, strong convictions based on your word, that we might be faithful to do what your word teaches, that we might believe what the word of God says, and that we might be faithful, Lord, to know you in accordance with how you've revealed yourself in your word. And that we might make a difference in our generation, Lord. That we might be used of you as those who are holding up the word of God. And letting it be seen for what it is. The truth that changes people's lives. We pray, Father, that you would work mightily through your spirit to accomplish that great end. So that many people, so that all people around us, Lord, will be impressed with you. And the wonder that you are through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.